Today on episode number 279 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Brian LaDuca shares about applied creativity for transformation. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me for today's episode is Brian LaDuca. He is the co-founder of the Institute of Applied Creativity for Transformation at the University of Dayton, which launched the only undergraduate certificate in applied creativity in the nation. A national leader in curricular change, his approach to vocation-centered design for social innovation has been a new model for common good impact across all schools of study. Brian, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You are an expert at a topic that I suspect is really overused and very misunderstood. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about just entering in the world of creativity and then how it changes a little bit when we start talking about applied creativity. Absolutely. I mean, and thank you for the compliment on expert. I think that's a, a tricky word. I, I, I'm knowledgeable and don't know anything as well. So I think when we talk about applied creativity, I think it came out of the idea that we were starting to see a generation of students who were starting to be more connected with the concepts of creativity and the ideas of what it is to be a creative thinker, mm-hmm. but was also separate, trying to find a way to separate it from art making, right? So this concept of art making in the same way that we kind of have these dichotomies of innovation equals engineering and entrepreneurship equals business. I think this concept of creativity equals arts was really not finding a home anymore in this, in the millennial Gen Z model of, of teaching and learning. And so when we were starting to recognize was how do you take the concept of novel new knowledge and those aha moments and give them purpose, right? Because our students are filtering out so much new information and new ideas in a 24-hour period that we can't even imagine. How do we give them a scaffolding to begin to animate that those ideas of creative ideas into a way that becomes applied into their, specifically their field of study, but also perhaps even their lived experience. So really trying to understand if you take creativity and simply call it a new idea, wonderful. But if we can start to find an application to that creative moment, you now start to have purpose behind the sense of creativity and it removes it from just kind of a moment of cool art or cool things, and really starts to give it some kind of thrust that actually can kind of really create a new way of projecting and animating things and disciplines that typically don't get that same kind of actions, say, in an English department or even in an accounting department. So that's where it kind of came from, is leaning into our students' possible ability to kind of create ideas on the fly, even though they don't realize, and really building a applied scaffolding around it so that they can feel as empowered in their new idea making as, say, an artist does regularly. Some of the tensions here have to do with 
how do we grade creativity? You know, and, right, and, right. And, and is creativity even something that you could measure? And then also, is creativity something that you either have or don't or, or right. an actual skill set? You mentioned a process. I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. In what ways does a student's prior experience in education possibly hold them back? But let's include ourselves, too as teachers in a context of higher education, in what ways have our own experiences held us back from really being able to tap into our capacity for creativity? Right. So, and that's, a, I, I love that you both went, Bonnie, both went with like the student, but also us, right? And that's really key because we have to recognize as any kind of educator, well, I'm a parent or I'm a teacher in the classroom, we've got to recognize that we find little babies and toddlers and three or five-year-olds so novel because they're fearless, right? The concept around what they know and what they don't know is holistically blurred. And we find, we spend time in those spaces and we love it, right? We're free. And yet we walk out the door and we start owning, what do I know? And anything I don't know, I'm afraid of, right? And so, but really the whole crux of the concept of creativity is to actually lean into that, that variable of unknown stuff, right? But as adults, that tension you just mentioned becomes lands right in that space of, well, I don't know something, which means I'm not going to raise my hand. And if I don't raise my hand, then I look like I don't, I'm unknown, or if I don't want to, I'm wrong. So what ends up happening is, is that we're so fearful of the, the unknown or what we would call, and we'll talk about soon, the ambiguity that we kind of strip ourselves down to just knowledge, right? I'm going to raise my hand when I know something. And as a teacher, I'm going to call on you because I know you know something. You get the right answer. As a teacher, I feel good. And if I feel good and you feel good, those turn into good data points. And data points equals dollars in the public school system, right? So it all kind of revolves around this idea that to know something is good data and to not know something might be not good data. Yet the creativity point and that tipping point is to actually empower the dichotomy between content and ambiguity in the same way. Therefore, that whole concept of, we hear this a lot, fail forward, fail fast, or fail fast, fail forward. It's all built on that ability to stay creative in the spaces of the unknown. And the unknown as adults and as students have been kind of schooled out of us because the unknown doesn't answer tests on a standard standard test. It doesn't do that. And that, I think that's the issue. We got to get back. By no means am I saying we're playing with blocks and we're, you know, and, and Play-Doh all the time in our classes. Because that's, I think, what people think when they think of creativity in the classroom is let's do all this, you know, hands-on making. I think it really becomes more about uh, a state-of-the-art thinking and really trying to get the brain back to where we were once in that kind of empathetic, innocent spot of unknown. And that's the hardest part about it, I think, is really trying to empower that creative space of gray. You're bringing up two contrasting memories for me. The first is when I first started working in a business context, I hadn't majored in business. This was sort of an accidental (laughs) career I fell into, for lack of a better way of describing it concisely. And I just, I hadn't ever been trained that you shouldn't ask. So if someone brought up a word I didn't know, I would say, I'm not familiar with that. What does that mean? And I, I had never had that conditioned out of me. And then I'm fast forwarding to when I was earning my doctorate and getting ready to do that final defense. And the guy who had taught our statistics class had said, because it was a quantitative dissertation, so you need to know every single number. If they go to column three and it's row 14, you, you need to know 
where did that number come from? What does it mean? I took his advice very seriously, but what he was preparing me for, or trying to, it worked, I have a doctor today, was not to ever say I don't know in that context. And then we get into our disciplines and it's like, you're going to present your your research in front of a conference. You're going to, you need to wear the armor of, I know everything. And, And from the very beginning of this conversation, I can tell that you've managed to unlearn some of these things we've been conditioned and you were reminding me and it's my last bit and then I'll, I'll actually get back to interviewing you because that's why you're here. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's great. <laughs> but uh, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the Dunning-Kruger theory, but this is the guy that says that the more his research, the more that we know about something, the more we realize we know nothing about it. Right. So like, it's the if you learn a little bit about something, you might actually be overconfident in your knowledge about a given area. And then you start to learn more and you go, oh, this thing is so vast. I know nothing. <laughs> it's right, like, right. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, first off, I think this goes back to when you add, you said expert, right? When the very uh-huh, beginning, because exactly. that like is like assumes that I know a bunch of stuff and, yeah. I, and, and, and I'm good at that. And I think for the longest time, I sought that out, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm a first gen college kid from the South side of Chicago, right? So like, Going to school to the University of Illinois was like, my family had no clue what that even meant. I didn't know what that meant, right? Mm -hmm. So you show up at college and I'm going in as a graphic design major and really majored in fraternity life and like really (laughs) didn't have any clue what was going on. I stumbled in the theater because I wanted to get in the film because I had a fraternity brother who never went to class and not because it was theater, but just because he didn't go to class, but he told me about theater. So I'm, I'm running in all these systems, right. Of trying to figure out who I am and what I want to do, but have no vocabulary in the, you know, the late nineties for this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, I, I think now what it was, and I was so not confident about it back then was that I had no clue what I wanted to do between ages of 18 and 35. Okay. I'm 42 right now. So it's not that long ago. I didn't know what it was. What shakes up those embers for me, and we all have that crucible moment, right, that shifts the dynamic for us, right, that all of a sudden you go, oh, my gosh, my ego ego goes out the door. I don't know anything about anything. For me, it was the birth of my twins. Mm. So my twin boys are born, and I literally realized, and at that time, I was a very, very successful theater producer in Chicago. So I produced theater professionally. I was an educator at the University of Chicago. You know, in Chicago, those are all great marks, right? Deep down, lost, no purpose, right? I think that's what ends up happening because we're trained four years in a, four years of college as a job, right? And that's what's supposed to happen. But the times are changing, right? All of a sudden, you go to school for one job. Four years later, that job doesn't even exist anymore. So what are we teaching you? And I'm looking at my twins in August of 2011, and I'm going. It's all crap. Can I say crap on the show? I don't even know if yeah, I can. But like, I think- you know, it's all it's all that, right? I don't know. And I don't know anything. And I have no purpose. I have no possibilities. My passion's all over the place. And I'm looking at my twins and I'm going, I, I'm not ready to give up all myself to them, but I don't know what I want for me. And it was took my wife to finally say to me, she knew what she wanted to do and she wanted to be a mom. Mm. And I said, well, then we need to figure out a way for you to stay home and take care and be a mom. And I can figure out what it, and that's what it takes, right? You have to have this crucible moment in order to get through. Cause you're right. I, I this imposter syndrome of knowledge for, for, for years on end is something that I don't want any generation of student to have to feel ever again, because to not know who you are at 19 is exactly what you're supposed to be at 19. 
That's exactly what you're probably supposed to be in your 20s. Like you should go out and wreck shop and find out things. I mean, and be have good ethics about it. But let's get out there and explore, play with things, touch things, figure out what are the applications. Because you know what's happening? Two years later, that stuff's going to be gone and a whole new bandwidth of stuff's going to show up. And we've got to be able to empower that somehow. So the universities as a whole can't pivot that fast. So we've got to find a way to find these micro campuses on the campuses to create pivots. And I think that's what we sought out to do was trying to find that runway for our students who are lacking and that want to find purpose, passion, and possibility in the work they do and not really like knowing that that's a lifetime of work, mm-hmm. not just four or five years of college. I am so pleased that you just made my job so easy to transition to this next thing. So I mean, (laughs) purpose, passion, possibility, we really do put some arbitrary things around that. I mean, and so much pressure that it has to happen within whatever the time frame is, is it four years? But but you also can guide us now into, well, we do the same thing with creativity, we either have it or we don't. Right. Or, or it's within this context, but it doesn't work. If I'm painting, you know, <laughs> that's creativity. Right. Or I'm doing a show, that's creativity. But if I'm looking at some, a spreadsheet, doing some analysis, oh, no. Oh, no, no, that's not creativity. That has right, right or wrong answers. You do or you don't. Not, not true. So tell us about the three-step process that we can begin to use in order to break some of these habits of thinking around creativity, some of the myths right. that we subscribe to. Absolutely. So the structure that you alluded to, this what we call ideation, disruption, and animation. It's a three-step process. Oddly enough, it's modeled after the Greek plot lines of the hero's journey, or even let's bring it back to earth even closer. It's modeled off a contemporary 30-minute television sitcom. <laughs> and so when you think about it, we call ideation what would be equivalent to the first 10 minutes of every modern sitcom, especially. So let's, let, let's just use like Friends, right? For instance, I, I noticed that that is now spanning generations thanks to Netflix. So you always enter Friends with three very key moments and you can use this in any kind of curriculum that you're doing, whether it's history or math or whatever. But if we open an episode of Friends and the show is at the, at the coffee shop or at an apartment, that content that we know, that's the content we're, we're familiar with. That's our knowledge. We're very comfortable with that. We know Friends is starting off somewhere we know. Those characters are there. Boom. That's what we know. Now, if for some reason that episode doesn't start off on one of those two places, we probably have a very special episode and our content is a little bit off, which is great. Somehow, some way, we have to allow us as our students as, or as our teachers to allow us to, to get that content off our chest. We have to kind of clear the mechanism because what happens is in a, in a problem-solving process, well, and this is what you kind of do when you think about anim- these three steps, ideation, disruption, animation, you have to think it through an experiential lens, right? You have to start thinking about it in a way that can ap- apply to the work in our lives, even in the most banal way. And so if I know something or I have a know-it-all next to me, give them the opportunity for 10 to 15 seconds or five minutes to get that off their chest. That's their content. That's great, right? And that establishes the boundaries and the bound and the guidelines to our work. But the key part is the next step. Just like in any television sitcom, somebody tells a character something they didn't know. Boom. That character goes, oh my God, Ross, really? You lost the monkey or something like that. I don't even know. Right. And then all of a sudden the rest of the characters go, well, I don't know. And I don't know. And we, we empower our sitcoms to live in the unknown until the first commercial. Our students should be empowered to be in those spaces as well, because it's the ambiguity that's like the lock and key to the content and the resulting action is attention. 
And that tension is what we would call an emotional aha moment before we move on to the pathway of kind of disrupting this problem. And so you can take all of these components and, and look at those first, that, that first structure of ideation, and it really takes a large concept or a plot line and shrinks it down and filters it down into some manageable moments of action. And that's really trying to get our students to really think, yes, you have a ton of information. You are nonlinear by process. Let's help you recognize that these are nonlinear things and pull what you know plus minus what you don't know in order to get us to what you want to know. Okay, and you get to that tension spot, right? Tension as adults makes us cautious. And a lot of times we'll pivot right off that tension because it makes us nervous, right? We don't have scaffolding for it, right? So then we go into disruption. And for us, disruption is an empathetic collaborative model. It really means you have a tension spot. I have a tension spot. We're both going after the same journey, just like two characters after the commercial and friends. They're on their way. And at some point in time, one character learns something new about somebody else's character and puts themselves in that shoes and they go, oh my gosh, I had no idea it was that about you. Let's work together and find out this stuff together. And so if you can find an active empathy sprint or some kind of activity that allows those individuals to take their tensions and work through them at the intersections of open-ended questions, values, needs, very human elements, the collaboration moves beyond just simply human interaction. It starts to interact the tools that you need to kind of solve this experiential problem, right? And the resulting response of that empathy and collaboration turns into animation because right there, that resulting aha moment after the empathy and collaboration, typically people go, those are awesome. We have, we've got an idea and then we stop or we put it on a post-it and we do it again and we just brainstorm. But instead... The act of taking that aha moment and filtering it through an animation process, giving it human action back and moves it back to the content and the ambiguity, that ideation, that kind of cycle of knowledge allows our students not to be in a space of solution, but keeps us in a space of process-oriented thought and allows us to say, hey, the right and wrong answer isn't nearly as important as your ability to both filter down ideas, work together in ideas, and move ideas back into the system again. I mean, in long game of that, you do find you know, off-ramps where you've got to kind of make those things happen in reality. But what it does is it empowers students from the creative confidence space is to say, oh, my job isn't to solve something here. My job is to kind of accelerate thought around these ideas. And that creates a freedom for both the extrovert and the introvert thinker so that they can both feel that they're not going to be judged on right or wrong deliverable, but more judged and, and, and supported in the process of kind of rethinking a problem from a bunch of different empathetic angles. And so that's really the framework you're talking about right now. And it really, that's just simply the hero's journey of any traditional plot line. You know, I have an issue, I have an obstacle, I have a rising action, I have a solution, and I have a denouement. And that just kind of that iteration is really important. And when you start thinking about story and connecting that with our students' purposes, no matter what major they are, they have a story and they have purpose. And that really begins to kind of fulfill that cross-disciplinary aesthetic that makes what our work does, the applied process, so powerful because engineers are now talking to English majors who are talking to art majors who are now talking to business majors at the intersections of their purposes and their stories. And I think that's when real, novel, new ideas and social impact occur. I want to test out a couple of ideas to make sure I'm understanding this well. Please. So these are two downfalls that I have often seen groups of faculty have 
in the in in attempting to do this kind of creativity and the kinds of problems that we try to sh- to solve together as faculty. The first one is around. <laughs> I guess I would best describe it as really not being able to stay in the place where there's so much unknown because we want to jump straight to the fixing (laughs) and I want to jump straight to the solutions uh, because then I can be, it it just, it just seems to be, I've noticed a real discomfort there. And then secondly, it's kind of the opposite of that. And I don't, I don't know if I've done enough analysis to say if this is one type of group versus another type of group, but that's, I think how I'm imagining it now, the second kind of group would be that we, don't ever get to the solutions. Like we're just yeah. like idea, no, idea, 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 but nothing coming down to action that might actually then have these ideas make any difference at all. You're absolutely right. I think that I can tell you right now, the cycle of iteration without impact or valuable deliverable impact is one of our biggest issues and fears with this, especially when you start to teach the model, because this, this concept is like an exercise. I mean, it's like going to the gym. You're working mm. your brain out. It's not like it's going to, I can't just show up and help you do that and then walk away and think in one day, man, they're going to nail this. They, no, it's a practice. It's a pace, which works in perpendicular to our current lifestyle. Of everything is so immediate, right? So the time is not precious, but the problem is if you let pro- time go forever, then you lose value. Then you're devalued, right? I think that is a key. One of the things you've got to be able to start doing is this idea that the iteration at some point in time, the animation of a concept has to at least be tested, at least has to move into a space of tangibility. And so for our work, I think the hope is that at some point in time, a professor, a teacher, a parent needs to encourage them to stop and put it out there and try it and give some, either if you're the stakeholder or if you're doing this for other stakeholders, to put it in their work. Because what's going to happen again is somebody's going to turn around and say, this is really great, but what if we tried this to a two? But at least I know now that I have a process in which to not be offended by the critical analysis of it, but I have a scaffolding where it allows me to go, wow, I thought I was done or I was close. You want to do something else that I can go back into the system and try it again and get excited. But I, cause again, again, the, one of the questions I would always ask, and Bonnie, maybe ask you too, is this, is like, when is done? What is done? I hate to get all like metaphysical, ethical, whatever, but this seems, what is done to you? I mean, when would you think, like, again, I guess that's the question. Yeah. And and I see there's a parallel for me in what you're saying. One is that those of us that really treasure movement, and I would be one of those, (laughs) that that we don't ever want to forget that it's never done. But then for those that treasure the, we are never moving forward, we feel more comfortable before a decision gets made. And there's that. So I think for both of these types of personality traits, we want to recognize the weakness in our paradigm. That for me, if I'm like, let's get this done, let's move it forward, that I will sometimes forget that there could be an emerging idea that I miss because I was so ready to get to my artificial done that's not really done. I think if you think about it, though, I think that's the, that's the handshake or the hug between the convergent thinker and the divergent thinker, right? Applied creativity inevitably has to be applied to something. It cannot live in its own ether. That is very ego. Like It needs to find a way into some space. And so if I'm applying to a mechanical engineer, my hope is that trait of convergence, that skill set that that engineer hopefully may have is going to be the kind of yin to the yang to this divergent process. There's no way. Because you're right, if we don't, then it's going to be unicorns, rainbows, and lollipops for a very long time. And I would prefer to kind of put some rubber to the road with that. I think you're absolutely right. But it also goes 
those convergent thinkers are the ones that we have to try to kind of make safe and warm the pool that we're asking them to jump into. And I think that is still always more of a personal and professional kind of relationship. And do you have the ability to put them in a space full of trust and vice versa that allows them to sort of break through? But again, that also takes time from observation, from deliverable, from data that allows those who are afraid to go into this kind of very ambiguous space to at least try to play in the ambiguous space. I think there's no silver bullet to this. I hate to say it, but it's very much human in that we have to try and learn from those mistakes and those successes to continue to kind of build broader and longer relationships around this kind of nimble mindset. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I just have one final question. It's an easy one, so you should have no problem. <laughs> you're, awesome. You're, I'm teasing you. You're, you're talking to your fellow teachers, your yes. people who just treasure that. And as we think about our own capacity for creativity in rethinking some of our classes, our teaching approaches, et cetera. What's the one piece of advice you have for us in terms of unlearning some of our habits that we've gotten into that aren't helping us tap into our ability to apply creativity? That is an awesome question. I would ask anybody, even if from kindergarten to a PhD, if you're looking to kind of sort of break the mold a little bit and try some meat and ask, meet the student where they are and what they do and how they think, right? Because you'll find that a second grader is going to tell you, well, I had this problem and I did this. And you're going in your head with your skill sets. Wait a second. I can adapt that to the work I do. I can find a way to use that in my, and to, and to bring that back with your expertise as an educator, but through the lens of an empowered, radical second grade process for problem solving, makes not only that student empowered, but the entire student population go, wait a second, teacher didn't know something, and we taught the teacher. So if we can create a very 360-degree flat hierarchical approach to our educational system and listen to the student and lean into that student wherever they are from a space, I think the awareness of being able to pull from their knowledge and their problem-solving capabilities and adapt it in the work that we've spent years doing really creates new approaches and really bolsters the creative confidence, both in the student and the teacher. And I think that is probably the one piece of advice is just meet them, listen, and then see if you can't work innovate and innovate with them. This is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations, and I have two. Today, I would like to recommend a wonderful project put out by the New York Times. It's called the 1619 Project. And I know some of you listening might be thinking, that came out a really long time ago. Just work with me here. <laughs> if someone hasn't heard of it yet, they absolutely should go check it out. And again, we'll be linking to it in the show notes. So I'm going to read their description of the 1619 Project because they do it far better than I ever could. I'm quoting here. In August of 1619, a ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal port in the British colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. America was not yet America, but this was the moment it began. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the 250 years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. So I'm talking about two different recommendations here. One is I recommend that you go click the link to read this project in full. This was from the New York Times Magazine. It is 
brilliant reading, brilliant design, the images uh, just tell the story in a very distinct and powerful way. And the second recommendation is to recognize that they also put out a series of podcasts around the 1619. I'm going to save some of the future episodes for future recommendations. So I'm going to recommend today just one of them. And that is episode three of the 1619 podcast. Episode three, I actually listened to first, because if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that I'm a big music fan. And episode three is all around American music and how the vast majority of it was stolen from black music. And I found these amazing connections that I didn't realize were there around some popular music from when I was growing up. And it's just a brilliant audio piece. It, if you love music, you're going to just be wishing that they'd play the entire songs. Like, I, I got to go find out if there's a Spotify or an Apple Music playlist that actually uh, has every song that was in the the podcast episode, because it is just brilliant podcasting, brilliant storytelling. And I'll save some of the future episodes that I'm going to recommend from the 1619 Project for future recommendation segments, because I don't want us to miss out on Brian's because Brian has a lot to share with us today. So Brian, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I, I have sort of five recommendations that I'm wrapping my head around right now. The first being a kind of older piece, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, which is a book by Mitch Album. You know, I read this book back in 2003 when I met my wife. And, you know, I was moved by the authentic love depicted. And even 16 years later now, I, I think about the milliseconds that can change a life. And I've been really trying to look, how do you take these moments of aha that sometimes are resulting in negative scenarios and tragic decisions and turning them into positive moments and teaching? So I'm really looking forward to trying to adapt this into some of my ideation, disruption, animation processes. The next book I've been reading is a book by David Epstein called Range. And I'm in this book right now. I'm taking some time with it. But I've had friends from Nike all the way down to here at University of Dayton telling me that the correlation with how progressive workforce designs and the study of the work we're doing are really important because this idea that the expert is sort of moving out and the individuals who are now really good at a lot of things, with our, where, is where our students are finding themselves right now and been told not to do, are actually what we're looking for right now. And so the range by David Epstein is this. There are three things that are kind of more commercial. There's part, I, I got real late to the party on Parks and Rec. I really have gotten late to the party, but I just can't can't get over the blend of humanity and humor and absurdity that was in, that is in this. And if anybody hasn't got a chance to binge it, I would highly recommend it because I love the 30-minute television binge. Chance the Rapper's new album, The Big Day, which is – I'm a huge hip-hop guy, a big Chicago guy. The, the, the CD's one part mess, one part brilliance, but – for a first studio album, Chance talks about marriage and this idea of how it feels to be in love and to find uh, passion and, and stuff, and which is very alternative in today's hip hop. And I think it's fascinating. And then the last piece is just, I've become a big Funko pop collector. For those who may not know, Funkos are a rage right now. They're kind of, some people say they're the new Beanie Babies. But what I love about them is that they are depicting pieces of my 20s and 30s, such as their 90s collection of NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears that I now can put on my shelves in my, in my office here at UD and have students ask me, who are these people? And I have great stories for them. So there you go. So I'm while you're saying that I have to go check out. I didn't click on the link. So funk. These are physical things I hold in my hand. Yeah, they're like they're like the next evolution of like a bobblehead, right? And so, but they don't. Some bobble, some do. But the evolution right now, there's a Tupac Shakur that goes for seven hundred and fifty dollars on the market right now because they vault. 
They put them in a vault and stopped making them after two-year windows. But they are now pumping out a whole series of 90s ones. The original Friends cast ones are very expensive and hard to find. They're just fun. And my son, one of my twins, he's an avid collector and has about 55 Marvel ones. He's a big Mar Marvel Cinematic Universe person. So it's, it's kind of cool to collect with my, with my children right now as well. It is so fun to have things like that in your office that create more opportunities for conversation Absolutely. and also opportunities for connection where you find, you know, this thing from our, our childhood, our growing up years, whether it's music or movies or books or whatever, where there are those avenues for connection with younger people and as well as older people too. So that, that sounds like so much fun. I actually went to the, the Instructure Conference. They are the makers of the Canvas Learning Management System. Okay, yeah. And I caught a little hula dancer. It's, it's also like a bobblehead, but I think it's supposed to dance on your like your, your dashboard, uh, yeah, 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 dashboard, but absolutely. I'm not putting it there, but it is sitting in my office waiting to dance. I think so, and it, well, and it creates a lot of conversation. I always consider that. I always say it's like Kaiser so saying. It's like that moment <laughs> in Usual Suspects, right, where people walk around. I, I let I want people to Kaiser so say my office. I want them to oh. see if they can drop and figure out what my story is by the stuff I put in my office. So everything in my office is very intentional. So now I have this whole question because I haven't. I don't do this very often, if ever. I think we have to add the usual suspects to our recommendations list. Yes. So it's either going on yours, Brian, or it's going on mine. Because if yeah. they haven't seen that movie, they got to watch that movie. So can I Absolutely. put it in yours? Absolutely, Absolutely. Please put it on, you know, one of those, it's a, one of those classic moments of, ah, oh. come on, aha is the end of a movie, right? It goes in the history of aha moments. And if you did not just get his reference about Kaiser Sose, <laughs> your Don't office. Don't look it up. Gonna, Don't look it up. No, 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 no. Just watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for remembering to tell people that spoken like a true teacher yes. do not google just go to wherever you can <laughs> absolutely <laughs> you will absolutely. ruin it you will ruin it yes it yes. will never be the same so brian it is such a delight to be connected with you i feel so much more energized coming off this time with you than i did when we started I, of course i didn't tell you that I try to keep some of these things behind <laughs> the scenes but it started out a little slow today and you have just brightened my day and i'm just so glad to have your expertise even though it's not expertise but i'm going to say it's expertise on today's episode Thank you, Bonnie, so much. And really, it is a pleasure and honor. And, and congrats on everything you've done so far and continue to do with the work you do. It's super important to kind of bring us all together at the table to share our knowledge. And I'm just, just blessed to be part of it. So thank you again. Well, it is absolutely a joy. It's part of why I feel so energized ending because you just feel like you're just such an integral part to a story that's been told for five years now and that I'm not planning on stopping anytime soon. So thank you for being oh, a part of the story. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Brian LaDuca, it has been such a privilege having you on the show and to be connected with you now. Thanks so much for being a guest on today's episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. It makes a big difference that you listen and that you tell friends about the show and also that you can stay connected using our weekly update. If you'd like to subscribe to the weekly update, you can go to teachingandhighered.com slash subscribe. And what you'll receive is the most recent episodes show notes, along with an article written about teaching or productivity written by me. You also get a productivity and educational technology guide with some tools to help you in both of those areas. So I suggest that you subscribe today or get connected in some other way. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.